Hi, everyone, and welcome to the National Governors Association's brand new innovation podcast series, Ahead of the Curve. I'm Brian Sandoval, Governor of Nevada and Chair of the National Governors Association. Through my NGA Chair's initiative, Ahead of the Curve, Innovation Governors, I've been helping my fellow governors prepare their states for the ongoing technology disruption in the energy and transportation sectors. And that is what we are here to discuss as part of the NGA Innovation podcast series. This episode focuses on financing new technology and innovation investments and feature discussion with some of the principal thought leaders in this area. You can find more information about this podcast and my initiative on our website, njahead.org. I'll now hand the mic over to Sue Gander at the National Governors Association to begin our conversation. Thank you, Governor Sandoval. I'm pleased to welcome to our Ahead of the Curve podcast, David Agnew, who is the Managing Director of Government Affairs at the Macquarie Group's Infrastructure and Real Assets Division and was formerly the White House Director of Intergovernmental Affairs. David is joining us today to help us understand the role that private sector financing will play in helping build out the infrastructure of tomorrow. Welcome, David. Uh, Thank you so much, Sue. Uh, I'm pleased to join this conversation. I'm a big fan of the work that the National Governors Association does and also, of course, a big fan of Governor Brian Sandoval. Great. Thank you. So, David, let's start with some of the basics. Um, Macquarie is one of the world's largest companies that many Americans may not have heard of or, or really even know what they do. Can you tell us a little bit about the history behind the company and what are you working on these days? So Macquarie Holdings is a global financial services company headquartered and listed in Sydney, Australia. Uh, It was founded in 1969. We have a market cap of about $26 billion, 14,000 employees working in 25 countries around the world. And we have the uh, diversified set of financial services offerings you would expect, corporate and asset finance, banking, financial services, commodities and and global market trading, investment banking, and asset management, which is my section of the business. Um, In terms of our asset management business, we're a a top 50 global asset manager with uh, $360 assets under management. So we're quite a a sizable financial player around the world. Our claim to fame, I guess what we're best known for, is infrastructure. And I work for Macquarie Infrastructure and Real Assets, also known as MIRA, M-I-R-A, which is the number one infrastructure asset manager in the world. Uh, We own and operate over 130 infrastructure assets globally. And, you know, I love this statistic. We always say over 100 million people around the world use a Macquarie-managed asset every single day. Infrastructure is our thing, and it's a safe bet that if there's a, a big infrastructure project that the private sector is involved in, uh, somehow Macquarie is there. Excellent. Well, I think you are just the guy to help us answer our questions uh, for this podcast, which is really about investing in innovation. And, and by that, it's really investing in, in the infrastructure that helps make that innovation possible. Uh, I know one of the things that your company specializes in um, is something that is growing here in the U.S., but maybe more popular outside the U.S., which is a concept known as public-private partnerships. Um, So I'd be curious if you can say a little bit more about that type of investment and what it means for states um, and other things that you've seen be successful around the world or, or here in the U.S.? The term uh, public-private partnerships is a kind of a catch-all term, I think, that, that means different things dep- depending on where you sit. 
And if you think about the way governments in the U.S. provide services, almost everything in some way involves a private deliverer of that service or that project somehow. And so the question is, how can we figure out together how governments can most efficiently deliver a service or build a new piece of infrastructure. And I think in the infrastructure world, P3s have become a more particular term of art. For the purpose of this conversation, you know, P3s can be a way, a more efficient way of delivering new infrastructure projects. And I think there's some advantages there that we can go into. And the second version of P3s would apply to existing assets, assets that are already there, are owned and operated by a state or a city, have a lot of value, and figuring out how to unlock that value and put that capital to work, perhaps in the creation of new infrastructure, is another form of P3 that I think is is gaining popularity here in the U.S. And the the basic idea of public-private partnerships, as I said, is to figure out the most efficient way of delivering something for the public, but also transferring risk from the general public and from the public sector to private investors and private operators willing to to price and and take that risk. And I don't think P3s are appropriate for every single occasion when it comes to big infrastructure projects, but I do think that we should view them as one important arrow in the quiver of a public official trying to figure out how to get things done most effectively. Help us make the connection between either P3s or or just broadly infrastructure investment as we talk about the new and evolving world of transportation technology, of energy technology. We've just spent the last year with Governor Sandoval having a a broad discussion with all the governors around things like autonomous and connected vehicles of um, smart homes and smart buildings and a smart grid And all these things do take more money, and that's a challenge for many states these days, even to upkeep the existing infrastructure they have. So how might governors think about the interest that they have in creating this new vision of tomorrow that is a more connected and autonomous and smart future and the ways that they can create some investment opportunities for the private sector? First of all, I would just point out that and this was new to me when I when I came into this industry, that there is just an enormous amount of private capital globally that would like to be investing in U.S. infrastructure. Uh, it's often referred to as dry powder, the amount of, uh, of money that investors would like to put into U.S. infrastructure projects. But the, the scale of that is enormous. And, and what that means is that there is a lot of money um, – from around the world, from pension funds and from insurance companies and other investors who have large sums that they want to invest over the long term for a stable yield. And that amount of money would like to be in the U.S. for obvious reasons. The U.S. is a a large, stable market, and the infrastructure need is great. So investors see that as a huge opportunity. And when it comes to innovation and and funding that innovation, I think the U.S. has a, a rich history of private capital and private sector operators pushing the envelope and and driving the country and and, and the world toward new technologies. And so the the history is there, the capital is there, and I think what uh, public officials and and what governors can figure out is is how to harness all of that and point it in the right direction, Uh, figure out what the big goals are that the state's trying to achieve, and then 
put in place a process or some guidelines for how that private capital needs to come in and make the specific investments. And so I think if a, if a governor lays down the markers, points everyone in the right direction, private capital will come in and compete and make sure that there's value created for the state. And when you think about the innovations occurring in transportation and energy, so many of them are already occurring as a direct result of just private creativity and desire to invest in the next great technology. The the opportunity for governors is to steer that just a bit and, and make sure that the investments that are occurring meet their public goals. Let me go back to this notion of dry powder. I think this is something that a lot of folks have heard and are curious to really understand some of the specific things that governors or states might be able to do. Are there specific actions, policies that might stand in the way of of that dry powder kind of coming to a particular state or a particular region? You know, are there kind of the underlining foundational measures that a state might want to take to make themselves more attractive and more of a target for that dry powder? States that have done it well have put a focus on uh, public-private partnerships as one potential delivery method. Um, and as I said, not using it every single time, but just figuring out when it makes sense to use that form of procurement to deliver big infrastructure projects. And there's some specific things that I think uh, states should take a look at. I think Virginia had a a state office that was focused on public-private partnerships, and several other states have had offices which do a variation of that, Texas, Florida. I think Arizona is considering establishing such an office now. I think giving the state government that institutional expertise and the confidence to put in place a process that, that brings lots of private capital in to compete, I think that institutional presence and that ongoing expertise can be very valuable. And the second thing I'd mention is P3 enabling legislation. I think about 37 states now have some form of statute that enables public-private partnerships in the delivery of infrastructure. And I think these always can be updated and expanded and just to sort of set the rules of the road, if if a state government wants to use this form of procurement, then this is how it does it. And finally, I, I just would say that all of this is dependent on a political commitment. I mean, leadership is what makes these things happen when they happen. It's a, a governor standing up and saying, you know what, I think this is the most efficient way to deliver this new bridge, and this is how we're going to do it. And then when the inevitable naysaying begins – the commitment to stay the course and to see that project through, that's what makes these happen. And over time, I think that the the controversy surrounding some of these P3s will go down as there are more and more uh, proven examples here in the U.S. of success. Kind of following up on that just a little bit, you mentioned cities and large cities. And one of the concerns or challenges that, that we've heard about in going around the country and, and talking to governors and states about infrastructure investment is that it's a challenge to think about how to attract investment in areas beyond the uh, the large cities that are in their state. Do you have any advice for governors as they think about how they can help bring in and, and attract investment such that the, you know, the whole breadth of populations are, are able to take advantage of these new technologies? 
sure. You know, I think that is a, a fair point that people make. That most of the of the projects that we invest in do have readily identifiable revenue streams that that come along with them, and those revenue streams tend to be most concentrated, obviously, in, in, in places with large populations. But I, I don't think that means, therefore, that P3s not have great value for the rural sections of the state. And I'll give you one example. Pennsylvania did a, a bridge, uh, a public-private partnership uh, for their bridges called the, the Pennsylvania Rapid Bridge Replacement Program. And it used a P3 to replace 550 58 bridges across the state and provide for their maintenance for the next 25 years. You know, when you look at uh, the U.S., we've got over 54,000 structurally deficient bridges nationwide. And so let's say a state owned a turnpike or a big toll road that was worth a lot of money to the private market. Uh, That governor could do a long-term concession on that road and yield billions of dollars that could be then utilized immediately to reinvest in the bridges across the state. So I think that's one example of how uh, some of these projects might not appear to have an immediate value for rural sections of the, of the state, but could be turned uh, toward that end if the governor decided that was a priority. David, you said something about transferring risk and that being one of the key elements of a successful public-private partnership. That term, that concept... Um, I'm not sure that that folks understand the significance of that and how it plays out. Can you just say a little bit more about how important identifying and assigning risks appropriately, how important that is and um, how states can think about that concept and, and benefit from that concept? Risk transfer is really one of the key concepts when a state is considering a, a P3 It's not the most glamorous topic, but I do think it's probably one of the most important. So there are so many different kinds of risks in a big project, design and construction risk, operation risk, traffic risk, if it's a a toll road, and all those risks, the public procures them on its own without any private help. All those risks would be borne by the public. And I was at a conference last week in California, the the California Foundation for the Economy and the Environment, and someone pointed out at that conference that if you think about it, every risk that the public sector in a procurement process doesn't shed to the private sector, then they retain that risk on their own. And some of these risks are quite large. And if a construction of a new bridge runs billions of dollars over the original budget, well, the public pays for that, and there's an opportunity cost for that if it's done through traditional procurement. If that's done well uh, through a public-private partnership and that construction risk is shifted to a firm like ours, well, we'll price that risk, we'll accept it, and if the bridge costs billions of dollars or more, then we would be on the line for that. And so I think it's important to remember that the public can shed some of these risks to the private sector, and we will take them. In many cases, we'll pay to take them. And the public can be protected from some of those downsides. And it's also, uh, I think, just one last thing on P3s in general. It's important to acknowledge that they aren't right for every situation and that how they are done matters a great deal. And I think the a governor looking at these, it's important to remember that on any transaction, the governor or the, or the mayor running the deal, they get to articulate what's important in terms of the public interest, what goal they're trying to achieve, 
what the standards are for their employees that work in that particular business, the environmental standards that the private sector will operate against, what the private operator will be able to charge. All those things can be put into a procurement process, and then we as private sector bidders will simply respond on those terms. So I think these uh, types of, of partnerships can be fantastic, and it's important to do them well. Wrapping up here with just a, a final question for you. One of the things that states are experiencing across the country are lots of uh, natural disasters. Um, we had one of the most um, expensive and um, intensive hurricane seasons ever this past year, and we're also experiencing wildfires and, and floods, and, and it seems like every state has been affected by that. Um, and it's really led to a heightened conversation around the resiliency of our infrastructure, um, transportation assets, uh, power sector assets, et cetera. Do you have any thoughts on how to better build in and ensure resiliency in the infrastructure investments that are going to be made going forward? Yes, Sue, I think that that is uh, an area of infrastructure that we are particularly interested in here at Macquarie. It makes uh, absolute common sense that we need to build resiliency into new infrastructure uh, to make sure that it can handle the increasing stresses that it's likely to face, whether that's flooding in coastal areas, drought and wildfires in California, hurricanes along our eastern and southern coasts. I think Hurricane Sandy was a a real wake-up call for a lot of people in the New York region and around the country. And then you see recent examples like the flooding in Houston, the uh, extended power outage in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. I think we need to be thinking collectively uh, as a society and as as private investors how we're going to build the new kinds of infrastructure that allow our cities and state to stay up and running. I'd like to ask you to just leave us with your prediction for the future of, of infrastructure investing What do you see over the next decade or so, um, particularly as it relates to innovative technologies? What should we expect to see? You know, right now there's there's this exciting awakening occurring, obviously, about the possibilities of technology to transform the way we move around and and the way we uh, get our water, get our our basic needs met. The exciting thing is that we have uh, all these great minds around the world trying to figure out how to address these challenges. I think infrastructure is capturing a lot of that energy. There are scientists and engineers and financiers and, and everyone trying to solve some of these big problems. And the impact of all that creativity and all that natural strain, I think it could yield some, some big jumps in, in how we uh, deal with the, the world. And in my mind, there's no doubt that private capital is going to play a, a leading role in building these new systems, as it should. When, when some of these technologies are being tried out, it's appropriate for the private sector to take the risk. As we've discussed, there's a great history in the U.S. of private capital moving things forward. Uh, so I think it's, it's quite an exciting time for uh, infrastructure, and, and we're going to see a lot of changes. Great. Thank you, David. And thank you for leaving things on a very positive note. Uh, we really appreciate your time helping you get us a little smarter on investing in innovation and, and helping governors think about how they can stay ahead of the curve. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. It's great to be with you. 